This morning, this morning we are beginning a series of scriptures that are from the Common Lectionary. Common Lectionary is a series of scriptures that are read by churches all over the world, and most of these will be from the Gospel of Luke. The theme out of all these scriptures all the way through the 1st of September seems to me to be something better. That God is offering something better. God is offering an alternative to us that is something that is better. In fact, the scripture read today will be read by millions of Christians all over the world today. We'll all be reading this passage together, thinking about and what it means. Today, I've invited my friend Matt Kelly to preach for me. Uh, he gave me a great week this week to prepare for a series I'm doing in September. But I want to be really clear, it is Matt Kelly, not Matt Hodges. Matt Kelly is from Nashville, has a beard. Matt Hodges is from Nashville and has a beard. Matt has, Kelly has kids, Matt Hodges does not. I wanted to get up and give a list of all the people in our church named Matt, Matt Ackerman, Matt Hodges, Matt Hodgson, you know, all the different Matts in our church, and then Matt Kelly, and then say on the 18th is welcome, Matt. But they said that was a bad joke. Yeah, yeah, bad, bad joke, bad joke. Anyway, aren't you glad I'm not preaching, right? Yeah. So Matt is a dear friend attending the church with his family, with his, with his three kids, and uh, I know you're going to give him a warm welcome today. I love him and love his family. I know you do too. It's, it's a good word today for our world. Thank you. Thanks for having me today, y'all. Uh, the last service, David said, uh, now Matt Hodges sings and Matt Kelly can't carry a tune. Which is not entirely true, but uh, you're not allowed to live in Nashville if you can't sing a little bit, but uh, anyway. Uh, so, as he said, my name is Matt Kelly. Uh, I, my family and I moved here from Nashville about a year ago. Um, I am an ordained United Methodist minister. I came into what we call extension ministry outside the local church. I work for a nonprofit called Family Scholar House. Um, and, of course, then coming here, getting to choose where we go to church, that's a novelty for me because usually the bishop says where you go. So, of course, uh, being a Methodist, being the tribal sort that we are, I was just thinking, oh, go to a Methodist church. And it very quickly became clear God was leading us to Middletown Christian Church. And so when a Methodist preacher is cool with going to a disciples congregation, even though his bishop ain't all that happy about it, that says something about the, the dynamic and wonderful life of this congregation. We've been so blessed to be here, and so thank you for having me uh, with you all today. As David said, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a couple of different passages, uh, many of them from the Gospel of Luke, like we're going to read today, and they all challenge us in different ways to see that we may think we want one thing, and yet God is offering us something better. So a few weeks back, my family and I went to an event in Western North Carolina called the Wild Goose Festival. There, there's all of us there. Now, this is uh, different from many Christian conferences or conventions you go to, because most of the time those things are in, you know, um, hotels and convention centers, and you can go to what you want to go to. You pick your seminar, you go, and then you can retreat back to your hotel room. 
You can have as much or as little interaction with other human beings as you want. And if you're an introvert like I am, that is awesome. Alone time, lovely. Wild Goose, however, is different because this is in a state park in western North Carolina. Everybody camps. So we took the whole crew. That included uh, Jessica and I and our, our three kids, Kate, who's 10, Claire, who's 7, Joan, who's 3, and none of these kids have ever camped in their lives. We were being just a little bit brave. We were worried that we were going to hear whining all week just like that. <laughs> That's a sign of life, y'all. That is awesome. Um, so <laughs> we were in western North Carolina where it is hot and humid day and night. Oh, boy. Now, the plus side of this is we were out in the middle of nowhere, no cell service, no nothing, so the kids could not ask us for screen time for four days in a row. Oh, my, was that a miracle. Parents, am I right? Yes? Darn screens. Now, as soon as we got back, they're like, screen time. So, you know, <laughs> didn't break the addiction, but we at least had a few days reprieve. And so in the tent that we were in, you can see it's a pretty good-sized tent. And uh, there's my daughter, Kate. And we had four cots in there. For five people. Let's do that math. So that meant the first couple nights, Jessica was trying to sleep with a sweaty, squirmy three-year-old on top of her. Mm-hmm, yeah. So the very last night, our neighbor uh, in the tent village, Helen, kindly loaned us a, a cot, that, an additional cot she had in her tent. So Jessica and Jonah could both sleep in their own spaces that night, and the next day, Jessica is running around the place like a leper that had been cleansed by Jesus. Praise Helen! Do you know what Helen did for me? She was. That is exactly what she did. It was, and if you hadn't slept for a couple of nights, that's what you're going to do. Uh, the Wild Goose Festival is really different from most other things because uh, you're there, you're camping. And when you're camping, there are no secrets. You can't hide anything from one another. One of our neighbors in the tent village, this dude could snore. Oh, my. And I'm pretty sure he, he heard me snoring, too, so it's mutual. Or you'd walk around the, the festival, and after a while, you could tell um, which folks were heading to the bathhouse to shower each day and which ones were not. <laughs> oh, boy. And uh, in the tent every night when we were trying to get our kids to, to settle down and go to bed... We might have raised our voices once or twice. I say might have. I know we did because uh, one of those mornings, uh, my neighbor, the snorer, when I saw him, he kind of raised his coffee cup in a salute and said, Did you get those kids to bed? <laughs> Oops. I would say I feel bad, but I mean, who here hasn't yelled at their kids in the last day or so? I mean, come on. <laughs> I know I have. There are no secrets. We weren't able to put up the walls between one another physically and metaphorically uh, that, that we often do, and, and we were just all there together. We all knew what was up. And so this morning we're reading a passage from the Gospel of Luke that challenges us to consider all the walls we put up, physical and otherwise, and consider the possibility that God is offering us something better. Let's read here from Luke chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 13 through 21. This is in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. 
But Jesus said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or an arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to them, the crowd, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. Okay, has anyone else ever like been talking to themselves and called yourself soul? <laughs> I have never done that, but I've got a lot, a lot of life left to live, so we'll see. Said soul. You will have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. The things you prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Friends, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this particular section of Luke uh, takes place during a very long walk. Luke is structured in a very specific way. At the beginning, Jesus and his disciples are doing their ministry of teaching and healing up in Galilee, in the north. These are the blue-collar fishing villages where they grew up. They're, they're around their own people. But at a certain point, they start this long walk toward Jerusalem. They're going from the small town to the big city. The big city where uh, all of the religious and political elites live. And, uh, of course, we know what happens when they get there. But all throughout this part of Luke, during the long walk, uh, these stories and parables and other things start to foreshadow for us what's going to happen. How Jesus and the disciples will not fit in with all those elite folks. And, as a matter of fact, how Jesus is going to be such a threat to those folks, they're going to have him killed. But even as this, uh, this journey is happening and things start to get darker, we're reminded, we're challenged, that as much as we want what we think we want, God is always offering us something better. And so we come to this passage in Luke 12, and, and, and y'all, i got to be honest, um, I've been studying the Bible for, for, you know, all my life, and this is such a frustrating story. Because like 80% of it makes sense. And then suddenly it doesn't. And we don't know what to make of it. So we start with this rich landowner. Let's call him Farmer John. Now Farmer John is living the dream. The, the things we're all supposed to want. He is a business owner. He's had the best year on record for his business. He's getting to expand, enjoy the profits, to, to really enjoy the fruits of his labor. This is an awesome story. And then God shows up. And in three sentences turns the whole thing on its head. And God says, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. Yikes. Does that not seem harsh? Because after all, you know, reading earlier in the Bible, did, not, did God not tell us to work the land? 
did God not tell us to be fruitful and multiply? Oh, Farmer John's doing it. What's, what's going on? Well, going into the weeds and the details a little bit might, might uh, shine some light here. Uh, first of all, Farmer John is described as a wealthy landowner. Uh, he's the guy in the office uh, taking care of the books and, and running the whole business, and then he employs other people to go out and do the, uh, the, the, the sowing and the tilling and the picking the grain and all that stuff. Uh, Farmer John's a job creator. Awesome guy. But when Farmer John is congratulating himself on the harvest, he makes no mention of those employees. I mean, let's listen to this inner monologue of his. It is so self-centered. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. Me, me, me. Good Lord, this guy is narcissistic. Farmer John forgets that the harvest is not all his doing. He played a big role, of course, but it's a communal effort. Everybody participated. And then he decides to build a bigger barn with bigger walls to keep it from everyone else even though it's the community that produced the harvest. And it's not just the community of folks on the farm that season that produced it. Uh, Farmer John, a rich landowner, most likely inherited this land from his father, who inherited it from his father and so on. And so you have got generation after generation, year by year, that has cultivated this land and gotten it ready to roll to produce this amazing harvest. It's... It's a community of generations in this harvest. Not only that, this wouldn't have happened without the sun to shine on the crops or the rain to water the soil. The nutrients in the soil, the seeds they save from the last harvest to, to keep this going, it, this harvest is the result of a community of all creation. Community of people, community of generations, community of all creation, and there's a common thread in all those communities, it's God. God who created all of them, God who made all this possible. And that's what Farmer John forgets, all these communities that came together to make this harvest. In a way, you could say that Farmer John is acting like God doesn't exist. And this bigger barn with this bigger wall that he's going to build is going to even keep God out? God is not too happy about that. And so we see why God's upset. But still, God's response, it does seem a little harsh, doesn't it? Tonight, your life will be demanded of you. I mean, Farmer John messed up, but come on, who hasn't? Anybody else here forget where they came from, from time to time? Anyone else get a little too uh, pleased with themselves, pat themselves on the back and forget the, the, the parents that raised us, the friends that influenced us, the teachers, the communities that, that blessed us and raised us up, the village? Anyone else ever forget their village? I know I do all the time. And that's usually when I fall flat on my face, and that's what Farmer John's happened to him. So we see... 
that he's messed up, but, uh, but the response seems a little disproportionate. Your life will be demanded of you? Come on, God, what's up? So we as the audience might ask, why is God going to kill him for this? But if we ask that question, we also have to say, well, hang on. Why do we assume that it's God doing the killing? Can I be a grammar nerd for a second here? Um, The sentence uh, that we see here, the English reflects the, the original Greek where the subject is not clear. This night, your life is being demanded of you, but it's not clear who's doing the demanding. Is it God doing the demanding? Maybe. Does this, is this just happen to be the time Farmer John's number is up? Maybe. Then again, what if it's the possessions themselves? Farmer John's insistence on keeping this all for himself, keeping everyone else away, building a wall. What if that is what is killing him? His dependence on his stuff that he thinks is his alone is slowly but surely killing him. The text doesn't say that specifically, and yet I can't help but wonder, is it something he's doing to himself and not anybody else doing it to him? holding on to those possessions, building those walls, it causes him to lose focus on the many communities that came together to make this harvest happen. That web of relationships, that's what really makes the meaning in our lives. Not the stuff it produces. The stuff it produces is good, but it's the web of of relationships of people. And when we lose focus on that better thing that God is offering to us, That is when we begin to die. Another way to say it is Farmer John is living in fear instead of hope. Fear that I got to hold on to this, I might lose it all, I got to hold it in as opposed to hope that God is going to be with him through all of it. Fear is natural and it's understandable. I came to church this morning afraid because I saw another mass shooting on the news and one yesterday and one last week in California and my kids are about to go back to school next week and I am afraid. Anybody else wake up afraid this morning when they saw the, the alert on their phone? Good Lord. There's a big part of me that just wants to start building a wall around my family, my children to protect them from everything. This is normal, this is understandable. Fear, it's not, it's not bad to be afraid. The problem is that when we let that fear control what we are doing, we lose focus on that better thing that God is putting before us. So you know the real problem in this parable it isn't even Farmer John and how much he messes up. It, 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 that, that's a problem, but what occasioned the parable to begin with is this question the guy brings to Jesus. Let's call this guy Steve. Steve walks up to Jesus and says, uh, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's looking for a legal judgment. He's trying to manipulate Jesus into doing what he wants, what, what is right. But Jesus refuses. Because the real problem in Steve's life is not the money. The real problem in Steve's life is the deeply broken relationship with his brother. And if Jesus acts 
in a juridical way, delivers this judgment, and, and, and Steve gets the money, the relationship is going to be broken even more. I mean, you go to court, grace goes out the window. And so Jesus sees that Steve has a deeper problem than even he realizes, and so he says, no. That wall between him, him and his brother is there, and it's not going to get any smaller with the judgment. And yes, Steve might be happy that day when he gets the check, I got my money, woo! But that's going to have negative consequences down the line because Steve has cut himself off from the life-giving community with his brother and others. He's going to slowly start to die because he's missed out on that better thing that God is offering him. I mean, we think we want this stuff. But God is offering us a community of relationships that transcend our possessions. God is offering us a community that is going to be with us through the seasons of good harvest and the seasons of not-so-good harvest. Maybe that's what Jesus means when he talks about being rich toward God. Consciously turning our eyes away from those things that we think we want, that the world tells us we want, and saying, I'm going to look toward and work toward that better thing that God is offering to me. Maybe that's what being rich toward God is about. We see here that Farmer John strayed really, really far from this community that produced the harvest. And because he strayed so far, his solution is to build a bigger barn with bigger walls to keep anyone else from getting his stuff. Farmer John's physical wall in the parable is Steve's relational wall there in the real world. Things that we construct to keep others out. Both these guys think their walls are the answer. But Jesus is offering both of them and all of us something better. Jesus is inviting us to build more walls. Jesus is inviting us to build Bigger tables, not bigger walls, bigger tables. The walls that we build between ourselves, they cut off community and they bring us death. And yet in the Gospels we see Jesus inviting people around the table to find home, to find a meal, to find reconciliation, to find life. Life is here, building the walls only brings death. Don't build a bigger wall. Build a bigger table. So we use our imaginations. What would happen if Farmer John decided instead of investing his money in more walls, he threw a big old party, built some big tables for his employees that produced the harvest, for his community around him? And what if he saved a little bit extra for some of those other farmers who didn't have such a great harvest like he did so they could survive? What would happen then? I'll tell you what, that table would bring joy. It would bring the community closer together. It would bring life. What would happen if Steve didn't go to court? What if he and his brother sat down in mediation around the table and they hammered it out? What happened then? Steve would probably get his inheritance. He'd also get his brother back. Those walls would come down. They would find healing. 
They would find reconciliation. They would find life. What would happen if each and every one of us took a look at the walls that we have built and others have built two between one another? That we built between this ourselves and, and people of different political views, people who practice a different religion, speak a different language, have a different skin color, may have come here from another land. What if we looked at those walls and said, you know what, let's actually come around the table together and celebrate how God has made us all one family. What would happen if we looked at the person who sits two pews in front of us and has forever, because we all sit in the same space in the pews, right? I do too. If we, if we looked at that person two pews in front of us, and we only know two things about them, we know what the back of their neck looks like. And we also know, uh, because we saw them in the parking lot one Sunday, we know which politician's bumper sticker is on their car. That's all we know. What if we decided to get rid of those walls we built between one another and sat down at the table together? I'll tell you what would happen. It'd be awkward at first. Oh, man, is this guy over here who voted for this? I don't know. I don't know the table. It will be awkward at first, guaranteed. But eventually, those walls will start to come down. We'll start to see that we have a whole lot more in common than we do different. We'll begin to experience community, experience healing. We will find that better thing that God is offering to us. A few years back, I had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land to walk where the places Jesus and the disciples walked. And one of the things I was most looking forward to was going to a place called the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall. We got a picture over here. This, uh, this is all that is left of the mount on which the, uh, the temple sat, where, where the Holy of Holies was, and the Spirit of God dwelt among the people, and they made the sacrifices. Um, it's ground zero for the Jewish uh, people is, is, is the pinnacle. And, of course, that was destroyed by the Romans. All that's left is this part of the temple mount. And so for, for centuries, for millennia, this has stood as a symbol for, for Jewish people of their loss of their exile, of being cut off from their communion with the holy. And so people will go and they'll write uh, prayers on pieces of paper and put them in the cracks of the wall as an act of worship. Well, in 1967, at the end of the Six-Day War, Israel recaptured this part of East Jerusalem, and suddenly this wall that was this place of longing, of lament and loss, they've got it again. Hallelujah, it's wonderful, it's holy. And if that were the end of the story, that would be great. But it's not. You see, this plaza here, very nice, accommodates thousands of tourists and pilgrims like me and others that go there. That plaza, for many centuries, was a Palestinian village. And right after they captured this part of East Jerusalem in 1967, they got bulldozed. And the people who lived there, and many of their descendants still, live in this refugee camp outside of Jerusalem. I've walked the streets of that refugee camp, and it is rough. But they stay there as a claim to say, we will return. And then, almost 20 years ago, the uh, second intifada uh, started in, in, in Palestine and Israel. 
an uprising. Uh, buses were blowing up in Jerusalem uh, multiple times per week, and so the Israeli government had to do something. So they started building a wall of their own along the border of the Palestinian territories. Now this wall is not these blocks like you see, it's these 25 foot high slabs of concrete with guard towers, it's pretty, pretty grim. Uh, if you remember what the Berlin Wall looked like, this is basically the same thing. Now of course they were trying to keep buses from blowing up in Jerusalem, trying to keep terrorists from getting across their noble goal, but it had some other effects they didn't anticipate. Actually maybe they did. This wall runs through a lot of Palestinian villages. It runs through a lot of farms that have been owned for generations. They, they cut down thousands of year old olive trees to put this wall there. And so now it is the Palestinian people who are cut off from one another. Families are separated. Farms are destroyed. And so now this large concrete block wall represents what the Wailing Wall once did. Being cut off. Being exiled brokenness of relationships, being cut off from community. Palestinians have a, a really impossible time trying to get through the checkpoints there. It's hard enough when you're an American and your nice blue passport is gold. It's hard enough to get through there when you're an American. If you're Palestinian, it's nuts. So that same day that I got to uh, be at the Western Wall and to put my prayers in, a, a, in the cracks there, I also got to walk along the Palestinian side of the wall. And it's both beautiful and heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because of the separation, but it's beautiful because all the graffiti on there is full of hope. Most of the Palestinians, not all, but most, cling to this hope that one day their people will be reunited, that they will live together in harmony. You can see much of the graffiti, you know, build bridges, not walls. Hope for a better day. When the Israeli defense uh, forces up on the top of the wall weren't looking, I grabbed a little chunk of concrete that had fallen off the base of the wall. If you know one in Israel, don't tell them I did this, please. I don't want to get in trouble. I grabbed a piece of this. Brought it with me as a reminder of what's going on. Now, friends, I don't know how. I don't know when, but there will come a day when this will be the biggest piece of that wall that is left standing. And God's children, Palestinians, Israelis, everyone will be around the table together in love, and reconciliation, and peace, and life. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know there will come a day when all of us and all the walls that we've built between one another, they will all come down. We will live in reconciliation with one another. We will find life and peace at the table So friends, may we be the ones who continue making all those steps, awkward and painful though they may be, taking those steps to build tables instead of walls. May we begin reaching out to those who are different than us to join in reconciliation, to invite others to join us in mending the broken relationships. Because when we're at that table together, we know he's there with us. Jesus, the one who invited us to the table in the first place. The one whose death ripped that curtain in the Holy of Holies apart that kept God and humanity separate. The one whose resurrection rolled the stone away to say that there is nothing, nothing that can keep us separate from the love of God. 
may we join Jesus and embrace that something better that he has for us because there at the table we will find life and resurrection. Amen? Amen.